You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is executive producer Lawrence Coletti. What you're about to hear is a previous recording featuring Evolve Law's Client-Driven Technology Solutions event, which was held at our home studios in Denver, Colorado. We now cut to Legal Talk Network and Logical CEO Adam Kamras making introductions. All right, so welcome everybody to Logical, and uh, I'll spare you guys the details of what we do. We do a lot for the legal industry all under this roof uh, in our Los Angeles office, and we've got some other folks kind of scattered throughout the country. If you want more information about what we do, there's a couple of us here, and you know, come back after we're done in the networking and, and talk to us. But I wanted to, as I was talking with Mary earlier today, planning for uh, the day and thinking about client-driven technology and solutions and what you guys are going to be talking about. I was on the plane yesterday from Los Angeles and I sat next to one of the chief system engineers from HP. And what this guy does is he goes in and he does these massive multi-million dollar installs for very large law firms, you know, uh, uh, very large corporations and solves these major problems. And I'm in tech and I didn't totally understand what he did. Uh, but what was, what my takeaway from it was is that even at that level where he's working directly with CIOs and CTOs and, you know, highly sophisticated, educated thought leaders and, or, 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 you know, highly educated people in technology and the CEOs, he said that he struggled with bringing on members of his team that had empathy and compassion and could have a conversation instead of a text message or an email and you know could really go in you know if they've done a 10 million dollar install at a major organization and with some empathy understand their pain points or know when they've made a mistake or done something wrong and so with today's panel i thought it was a little bit relevant because we're talking about technology and this big push to remove people from technology, but I feel, and I'm using this as a little bit of soapbox of, we have to be talking to people, we have to understand their needs. And I thought it was a little bit relevant, I was talking to him, even at that level, at the top of the top from technology, you know, they still struggle with really delivering seamless services and understanding those customer needs. Uh, and so that's my segue and the tra transition into today's talk. I'm going to turn this over to Mary Jutton, who, uh, if you don't know what she does, she does a lot uh, with Tracklight, but also with Evolve Law. And she's really spearheading throughout the country. I've been to a couple of events in a number of different cities now, and she's bringing together really unique and really interesting people that are doing cool things and sharing their knowledge. And frankly, per some of our conversations earlier, we could use some more of that here uh, in Denver. So uh, without uh, anything more, Mary Jutton from Thanks. Evolve Law. Okay. So, whoa. So I'm supposed to tell all the panelists to hold your mic three inches from, it's very loud, um, but we are recording this. And thank you all for coming. This is our first Evolve Law event in Denver. It will not be our last because we're inciting this little revolution, um, evolution, and we hope to get some of the people in the audience involved with creating something like a legal innovation group in Colorado, Boulder, Denver. I'll leave that all up to you with all your names of like the different neighborhoods. Um, but for those of you who don't know about Evolve Law, Evolve Law is a community that I started with my co-founder, Jules Miller, who's with Hire and Esquire, and is tonight in Stanford because she's speaking on legal tech communities tomorrow at Future Law. This is our 13th, lucky 13, um, 13th official Evolve Law event. It started because Jules and I were having challenges with our respective companies selling into the legal market. I know the lawyers in the room find that unbelievable, um, <laughs> but it's a difficult market. So we thought we would bring the idea of demo days or showing rather than telling. So we have the demo tables. And what I'd like to encourage everyone before you go, and there are lots of extra beer tickets, so please come back and take one. But before you go tonight, after our panel and our Darwin talk, please go and check out the technology. Um, the idea is that it's much better to look at something and see how it works than just read about it or hear about it. It. 
And we are, um, we're, the reason we do Evolve Law is we do think there's a great opportunity to deliver better value to clients. And that's why I'm pretty excited about tonight's um, talk because it's really focusing on client-driven technology and it's not to say anything bad about the Clio's and the other kind of back-end type products. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think what I've seen is um, the robots are not going to take over the world. Uh, <laughs> as an aside, I was at Collision, which is in New Orleans, um, and they had a panel where they talked about robots. And they said that they best belonged on the farm because the robots were so rude, like they have no manners. So I thought that was <laughs> really, really interesting. So the cows can be milked by robots, but you know, I think we're still going to need lawyers. And my, you know, my company, Tracklight, the idea behind it is not, we don't just sell to lawyers, but the idea is why not free up a lawyer to actually practice law, to use their professional judgment, which is something that I believe, and this is my personal, not evolve laws view, um, I just think you can't completely replace that, even with AI. So with that, I will turn it over to Joe Burchard and, um, from Law Booth to take away our panel. Yeah, definitely. Um, we're actually going to be talking about AI a little bit later on, so that was a perfect segue. Uh, we have a really, really killer panel uh, for tonight. You guys are really lucky. Um, just to my right, right here is Katie DeBoard. She's a partner and chief innovation officer over at Brian Cave, uh, which is an international law firm that has roughly 800 lawyers and 24 offices worldwide. Um, she drives Brian Cave's global initiative to innovate the ways that they deliver client services, including finding new ways to train, develop associates, developing new processes and technologies to drive efficiencies and collaboration within the firm, and building custom technologies in-house to, to kind of ride the wave, I guess. To her right is uh, Kate White, who is the client engagement and innovation st strategist at Davis, Wright, and Tremaine, an AMLAW 200 firm with roughly 500 lawyers in nine offices across the US and China. She's founding member of the DWT De Novo, Davis Wright Tremaine's dedicated innovation team. And last year, DWT was actually awarded the Innovative Law Firm of the Year um, by the International Legal Technology, Technology Association as a result of the De Novo work. So a lot of Kate's work right there. Um, as the award suggests, Kate is focused on developing a culture of innovation within big law and designing legal solutions to meet the evolving needs of clients. And then to her right is John Rome. Now, John's a nationally renowned cybersecurity expert and the current CEO of Intensity Analytics, a tokenless behavioral biometric security solution that improves cybersecurity in a non-invasive manner. I know it sounds really confusing, but it's, it's one of the coolest technologies that I've seen. You guys should really check it out. Um, John's also an attorney, an entrepreneur with a, a successful acquisition under his belt, and an inventor who's played major roles in legal technology ever the legal technology evolution over the past few decades. So we can all kind of agree that um, the way that law is being delivered needs to change and become more efficient. But what are the biggest pain points for those practicing law? Um, I think it would probably be best if we started with Katie from Big Law and uh, take it away. Yeah, and actually there's an, it's an interesting segue to what Adam was talking about with, um, you know, needing to some empathy and understanding the human um, alignment between law and technology. And um, I was thinking about this question a lot, and there's a lot of pain points, but I, I feel like, um, from my perspective, I was a practicing lawyer up until last year um, before I stepped in this role, and I think there's a lot of disconnect between um, people who are viewing law from the outside and thinking about ways that you can improve processes and make them more efficient um, through technology and eliminate some of the redundancy and, you know, what we would call maybe commoditize or commoditizable work. Um, and then on the other hand, you have the attorneys, um, it, you know, practicing um, pretty, you know, bespoke 
you know, practices. Um, you know, they have clients who they're advising on complex facts and complex litigations. And, you know, in, when they come up for a breath, they're told, well, technology could solve all of your problems. And, and, and I would say one of the biggest pain points is that there is no bridge right now between the lawyers who are, you know, sitting in this chair and the technologists who are, who are sitting in this chair. Um, and I agree with Mary. I don't think robots are going to take over lawyers. I don't see it. I don't know how it's possible. But um, I think that once we get lawyers understanding how technology can augment their practice and we start all speaking the same language, um, a lot of the other pain points can be rectified. Definitely. John or Kate, you guys have any thoughts on that? Or? I would just add, I would second everything you said. I would just add that I think um, even though a lot of practicing, especially outside counsel, see how much technology can empower their practice and help them do better for their clients, change management is still such a huge issue. And um, a lot of it is that bridge between technologists being able to say, we can make this better for you and we can build you a solution, and then actually implementing that into the practice. Yeah. There's more to it, obviously, than just plug and play. And you know, a lot of it also involves breaking the work apart, putting it back together, figuring out who's best for what task, and then who actually needs to use the technology. So there's just a whole ecosystem around the change. Uh, just a quick comment on that. Um, uh, a, a famous professor, Jacob Schmuckler, from the University of Minnesota, wrote a book on the diffusion of innovation and had to do with the rationale as to why people do or don't readily uh, accept new things. Uh, his book was published before there was a computer uh, era, and so he focused on hybrid corn seed. And he could demonstrate that regular corn seed would grow, you know, umpty ump bushels per acre. But hybrid corn seed would raise that by 70%. It took 30 years for the farmers to switch from just bushel A to bushel B. There was no difference. It just takes a long time. And so to some extent, there's some history that uh, guides us. And I'll have a lot more to say to that when I answer another question later. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, like you guys said, it's kind of it's hard to get the attorneys on board and, and really uh, pushing for this change. But the name of the event is Client-Driven Tech Solutions. So let's kind of talk about that for a little bit. Um, Kate, I'd love to hear what are your thoughts on client-driven tech solutions and what exactly does that mean? I think in our world it means um, technology solutions that are tailored to solve a specific client's pain point. Um, like Sam was saying, you know, a lot of this comes out of design thinking as having empathy um, and building a solution that actually solves the problem. Um, and a lot of times that can't be an out-of-the-box tech solution. So what our team has really focused on is understanding all the out-of-the-box tech solutions, amazing technology that's available, and then seeing how we can, you know, bring those technologies together and adapt them for what our clients are really trying to accomplish. Um, but it starts even further back, I think, which is what are the new pressures on in-house counsel? Um, what are the volume areas of work that they're needing to handle more efficiently? Um, how, can outside, how can outside counsel partner with them and help bring those technology solutions to them and collaborate in building a better way to handle that work? Um, I think, you know, there's so much... Um, there's there's so much potential in just seeing the the tech the tech folks and the outside firms and the in-house counsel really partner in in bringing all that knowledge together and building new solutions. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. So we kind of talk about the um, the evolving demands, I guess, for the clients um, and just kind of within today's legal industry. Where do you think that change comes from, like within the firm or in-house counsel or growing technology improvements? You kind, of, you kind of talked about a few different aspects, but where do you think the real drivers of that change is coming from? Um, John, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Well, I think you have to look at what kind of law we're talking about. If it's filing a routine divorce claim or you're adopting a child and you need a lawyer to do that or getting an immigration issue solved, I don't think there's any huge breakthrough coming from technology. I mean, once we got past word processing and document management, he pretty much had that licked. Um, but uh, in larger scale, larger scale practice, uh, some of the litigation and, and uh, world events, and I have a lot to say 
about Panama Papers in a few minutes. Oh, um, yeah. That's a game changer. And so when that happens, then the answer to your question is different. Um, and it requires a little history. Again, I might save my comments about that to just kind of one, I wanted to trace a little bit of the history of technology in the industry and then talk about uh, where uh, we're going and what some of the things are to pay attention to because evolved law, to borrow a phrase, um, has to pay attention to what's happening in the industry. Um, a quick analogy, I'll use a lot of analogies, I do. Um, not a lot of us worried about North Korea lobbing an atomic bomb over here 20 years ago. It was a joke, well, we could lob one there if we wanted to, but we were good people and we wouldn't do that. Um, we're not so sure now, so all of a sudden, they're getting technology has changed the way we think. They might be able to do that. So now all of a sudden, the need for technology in that thing changes from having a missile to having a missile defense system. So you have to look at kind of what's going on in the world, and there's a lot going on in the world that starts at the outside it comes in. So if we were to be very simplistic and divide you know, the, the interest of people seeking legal services into sort of routine, tested ones, as I said, adoption's a great example, or something really complex like a multinational litigation, you know, on many, many issues, there's different answers. I'll get to that. Yeah, totally agree. And so, similar to how you were just saying, there's, there's different drivers for different, I guess, sections of law, you know, big law, boutique firms, sole practitioners. Do you think that all these different, I guess, styles of law firms need technology to grow? Or um, do, you, do they have kind of different needs as far as how much technology they actually need to supplement their workflow? Um, Katie, I'd love to hear what, what you got to say. Um, my, I would say my first instinct to that question is that it's a little bit different, you know? Um, big law firms have far different challenges than a solo practitioner, um, you know? And they have different practices. Um, their, their clients look different. Um, I, you know, I think in some ways, you know, from a big law perspective, what you're looking at is a true a trend towards true business partnership, as Kate was alluding to, with your clients, where you're actually going into your clients and solving a systemic problem that has a tech-enabled component um, you know, that's associated with that. And I, and I think that with a, with a smaller you know, or solo-type practice, you know, um, you're, you're going to be interacting and interfacing with your clients on a much more personalized level. It's not going to be a, a systemic business overhaul that you're trying to solve. Um, so. Definitely. Do you have any? Thoughts? Yeah, I would just say there's, I think what we're seeing in our law firm, at least, is um, in big law, there are sort of two opportunities. I mean, there's tons of opportunities to leverage technology, but sort of two camps. One is there's technology solutions out there that help can, can help our lawyers internally enhance their practices, do their work more efficiently, free up our associates from doing monotonous tasks, and instead start to make them really strategic advisors or project managers. Um, that's like one camp. The other is really that collaboration with clients to solve their problems, um, to you know package the legal work in a way that adds that extra layer of value where we help them draw out business insights or create a better system, design a system. Um, so I see those as almost a little bit different and requiring a bit of different skills and change management techniques and things like that. As far as importance, do you think one is more important for the other for law firms to focus on or? <laughs> yeah, I want to answer that. Um, I, I actually think they're both really critical to approach because if you focus too much on, you know, externally facing technology for clients, but you leave your attorneys behind, um, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're leaving your business model um, kind of in the dark ages and that's a mistake. Yeah, that's how companies die out, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So. There's kind of those two different, I guess, theories on um, where technology should be moving, whether it's in-house or kind of client-facing. For the client-facing solutions, who do you think should pay for it? Should it be the law firm that's paying for it, or should it be the client that's kind of supplementing it through um, the hourly rate? I think law firms have a responsibility to invest in technology that's going to help them do better for their clients. Um, 
So I think law firms need to definitely be making those investments. I mean, the stat is something like your average business um, invests 3.5% of revenues in R&D, um, and the average large law firm invests like less than 1%. I think we're going to see that changing, and we already are. Um, we have you know people like Katie and my team on staff. Um, so we're already starting to see that change happen, but I think that um, where we are still providing legal expertise to a client and then we want to take that a step further um, and they're getting legal work product out of the technology solution, I think you know, there's, there's a pricing model involved in that. And what we have found is clients are more than willing to pay for that extra value they're getting from the insights that can be drawn from technology. Right, absolutely. John, what do you think? Yeah, again, I think, I think it's, a, it's a complex answer that varies um, with the nature of the practice and sort of uh, the, the state of the world. And maybe it's a good point at this point, since I've sort of alluded to, to deferring it for a second. Um, let me indulge your patience for a second and give you what I would call the Neil deGrasse Tyson view of technology in the world. Um, if you go all the way back to BC days, um, if you paid your taxes, you got a little chit sheet from the tax collector, the famous tax collector in the Bible. And the only way that you could prove you paid it is to show them the chit sheet later. So probably the first technical invention that happened was somebody came up with a, a, an urn of some kind and say, well, if you put the chit sheet in there, it won't rot as fast. And maybe that was the first use of technology. And the purpose of that was so that you could avoid a cost, another way of earning more money. And then if you look at the, the epic of law and technology, it really only divides into three eras. And, then, and the first one is, before anything electric. So up until about 1870, automation in a law firm might be a file cabinet. We have a nice way of cabinets on wooden wheels and we can roll the papers out, the 27 that are in there, and roll them back in. And that's a nice way to automate the practice of the firm. But it didn't really change anything. And then along came electricity, which had only three aspects to it. It had lights, telegraph, and telephone. Now that changed technology and the law practice a lot because now you could communicate with a client that didn't have to get on a horse or walk over there, sorry. Um, uh, you could work at night, so you doubled your, you know, not like Abe Lincoln that had to work by firelight. Uh, and and uh, you, know, you, you could actually talk to a client without having to have them come in. So somebody at that era might have said, as we might be tempted to today, what else do I need? Now, this is really super. Uh, and then uh, along came the advent of the computer. And I have to say, at the risk of dating myself considerably, uh, my professional career spans that entire spectrum. Uh, I got involved in computers in 1958. I graduated from law school in 1969. And uh, I did something that lawyers would normally do, so I toted up billable hours. And I come up with about 112,000 hours that I've spent in the era of using technology with law, calculated as 47 years times 300 days a year times an average of 20 working days per month times eight hours a day, and it's 112,000 hours. So I spent a lot of time, and my focus to justify how I spent my life doing that was to focus on bettering the practice of law and bettering the, the delivery of legal uh, services. So when you look back initially uh, at the things that I played a significant role in, this is not about me, it's about the profession and lessons that we have to take. Those who don't pay attention to the laws of history are doomed to repeat them, somebody once said. So initially the really big deals were word processing. You know, secretaries would quit and leave because she, at the time, started crying when the lawyer came in and said, you gotta retype that whole brief, and you know, she wanted to go home and cook dinner for the kids and couldn't. That had a huge impact on the social issues relating to the practice of law. Word processing, everybody takes that for, for, for uh, sorry, I'll do it. Everybody takes that uh, uh, for granted uh, today. And then the next thing that happened, again, is so mundane we don't think about it, is timekeeping and billing. You know, keeping track of everything we did and getting the invoice out to the client and all that sort of stuff. That took a lot of time. And now all of a sudden, it's all automatic. And we don't even think about that anymore. The trend that I'm starting to talk to here is adding technology to lower costs 
and increase the relationship with the clients. Clients appreciated accurate billing that was on, always delivered at the right time and was always accurate and always could be authenticated back to an actual source. And then people say, well, we have this thing called documents. You know, we've got to keep track of all these documents. Cases are getting bigger. And uh, through about 1975, you know, a huge case might involve a thousand documents or more. I mean, just a really enormous case. So what they do, they hired a pool of paralegals and they came in and the paralegals would go through the documents and then somebody said, well, you know, there's a computer technology that can do that. And of course there was all the resistance to that. Well, why would we replace humans with machines? Humans are so much better. And of course we always agreed with that. If you had a one document case, the only technology you needed was a thumbtack. You stick the document up on the wall and, and then you had it. You maintained it, you stored it, and you could retrieve it by looking at it. And then along came cases like Exxon Valdez with 10 million documents and a no-nonsense judge that said you've got 10 months to get on top of those. There is not a group of people in the world, any size group, that can coherently read, organize 10 million documents just using people. They had to go to machines. So initially they went to machines to scan them, but what people forgot to think about at the time is if you scan 10 million documents, you just pass the problem down the pike to the next step, which was then you have to somehow deal with them. So if you have 10 million documents scanned to a disk, so what? You want to find the document that relates to this fact on this date by this person, and it's not indexed that way. And so that begat the technology called uh, unstructured text and full text retrieval. So we got involved with that and figured out how to do that. Again, the trend continues. We are using technology to make more money, to provide better services to clients by using automation. And then the proverbial, you know what, hit the fan. Now, the technology is out and it's coming back into the legal profession for the first time. I'm gonna say that again because it's so important. Now, the North Korean bomb was on the other side. It's called cyber war. And whether it's another government or it's another client, now they are using technology for the first time to invade the province of the practice of law. And there's no defense to it. So when I hear, and again, I have my own views, but I've spent my whole life as I went through working on technologies to make the practice of law better, that nobody's paying any attention to that. It's like the deck chairs on the Titanic. But wait a minute, not what you think. When people use the analogy of the deck chairs on the Titanic, what they're talking about is what happened after the crash. Why are you wasting your time moving those chairs around? You better be looking for a lifeboat. But the real problem was the day before. Why are you sitting there having a nice drink and looking up at the sky and not looking out at the horizon? It's the horizon that's going to kill you. So by not paying attention to that, you wound up drowning. That's what's happening today, and there's two words for it. It's all over the place. It's called Panama Papers. The other guys are really good. They're incented. They're paid. They get a huge upside, whether you call it ransomware or anything else like that. Technology, for the first time in the practice of law, has become an enemy rather than a benefit. Whether the benefit shows up as a cost savings or shows up as a revenue augmenting thing, it's a problem. And so when I have to say sometimes in my own thing, I try to get people's attention, say, you know, Jesus, an iceberg out there. Yeah, well, let's get our social media act together. I'm not saying that's not important, but talk to a lawyer who belongs to a partnership whose house is on the line because it's not a protected corporation and they got a $20 million judgment from courts, which recently, and there's now case law out there, if you don't take care of confidential data, you're liable. What are you doing about it? So when somebody tells me we're just slammed, I ask the question, slammed doing what? Are you paying attention to what's going on out there? So I put my, my life's focus on technology early on as a pro and now as a defensive thing because that is the key issue that's out there. There's nothing else that, uh, that, that, that gets to that level, in my personal opinion, because uh, not, not on the uh, personal uh, practice of law, you know, the, the uh, uh, adoptions and that sort of thing, but in big corporate law, the obvious question that's going to come from the general counsel of the big outside company is, tell me in detail, how do you protect yourselves when I give you my confidential data? And if the answer is, well, we have a username and password, they need to find another firm. Yeah, I think you touched on some really cool technological, you know, milestones within the 
within the uh, legal landscape that really changed the how law was practiced entirely. Um, and it kind of brings up a question in my mind of like what what's next out there? You know, what's what's the next technology? What's the next e-discovery that's going to change the way that people are handling documents? You know, how um, is AI going to be the next big one, or what do you think? Basically, the next big technology for the law practice is going to be. I, you know, I mean, we we just touched on this, but when we're using the term technology, we're using it kind of all over the place. Mm -hmm. We're talking about technology internally within the firm. We're talking, sorry, thank you. We're talking about technology that you know firms like ours are building for clients to um, help refine processes. You know, help make sure that. Um, vendors are negotiating contracts according to the terms uh, that have been approved by the general counsel's office and and so there's a lot of different ranges of the term technology um, and um, I think for in terms of law firms and how technology is going to be used in-house I think that the next big thing personally is a couple of things. What, and it's not necessarily a technology. I don't have a predictor of a technology that's going to change the world, but it's it's how technology is integrated within law firms. And it's um, one is that I think technology is going to be increasingly used as part of a holistic solution that law firms offer to clients. So when there is a large M&A transaction, for example, that the, the law firms are going to be able to handle from nuts to bolts everything about that transaction, all the due diligence. They'll have the LPO relationships lined up. They'll have the technology in-house, you know, like Kira or whatever, to do the due diligence. They'll, they'll be able to run the information up to the next level so that the company that's merged can then use that data in different ways. And the law firm will really facilitate the ease of use of that data for that client going forward. I think that's, the, that, that's one thing in my view. And I think the next thing is, and Kate and I were talking about this before, um, is I think there's a lot of opportunity for strategic partnerships for, for between law firms and um, um, other technology uh, companies. And if we work together and if we share expertise, um, we can identify that new technology that I unfortunately, you know, haven't identified yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I, I'm with Katie. I, I, I don't have a technology that I think is the next thing, but I think we are going to see a shift in big law becoming a lot more like the big four, where we're focused heavily on consulting with our clients and helping them mitigate risk um, and really leveraging technology to do that, pulling together tons of data and saying, here's what we can tell you about um, you know, what could fall apart about this deal or where this type of litigation might head, um, how much it probably would cost you if we'd make this decision versus this decision. Um, I think those types of predictive analytics are going to be um, a core offering of law firms in the future. Um, and of course, a big challenge with that is we have to figure out how we change our pricing model and our, our revenue generating model um, that where that is that is paid for as value rather than being a reactive legal expert in helping a client once a legal event arises. Um, so really doing that proactive consulting going forward. Definitely, I totally agree with you. And I think it's becoming increasingly obvious, at least to me, that, that technology is not only here, but it's here to stay. And uh, if you don't adapt, you're pretty much going to die off as, mm -hmm. as a law firm. Um, so for lawyers that, that are here that are kind of looking for ways to get involved in the legal tech space, What's the best move? How can, they, how can they get involved? How can they leverage technology to help optimize their growth? Let, let me start with that by continuing the answer to the previous question and segueing right into that. Uh, at the risk of being slightly controversial, I don't always agree with what you two just said, and let me explain why and document my view. Um, uh, at the like risk a lawyer of, would do. <laughs> Bring it. I, this is as close to being a lawyer as I get. Uh, the, uh, um, uh, at the risk of uh, really uh, flattering Katie with all the flattering she needs, she's a titanic person in the industry with unique skills. You should read her LinkedIn thing. I did carefully, did some background research, and her firm is one a very unique, very capable firm. They're not typical and they're not standard. So my view is 
law firms should not be involved in inventing technology for several killer reasons. Number one is that they then put themselves in peril of losing the employees that invent that because yesterday they were worth $60,000 a year. Now they're worth $180,000. Loyalty is for zero, to edit my words here for, uh, minute, for a minute. And so, uh, and I know an awful lot about the employment market in the IT world. I know even more about it in the cybersecurity world, and there aren't any people out there. So the problem is that uh, somebody who works for a law firm who invents something that's really cool, they're going to get bought away from that law firm in six months. So it's a failed strategy. For the same reason that a law firm would say to its client, well, you should use us as an outside supplier and don't do it yourself. For all those reasons, the outside law firm, Brian Cave in this case, and again, a titanic firm, has the skills uh, to do that. And so they say, we can do that practice of law better than you can use us. I, I make the same point when it comes to technology, because one of the, the surviving issues in technology is, where are you going to be in 10 years? What's your long-term support plan? What's your backup? What happens if all of you guys lose interest? Or worse, you get your big IPO and you're all worth you know, $100 trillion and you leave. Where are you then? You're stuck. Whereas the other key technologies that we have, the ones I went through before, electricity and telephone and Xerox, you're not stuck anymore. Xerox doesn't work, you get some other machine. They're all, it becomes a commodity, it's fungible. So I think one has to be really careful unless you have this unique one-off thing. Now if it's a $10 billion case and you're gonna do it for one case, go for it if you can find the talent. So that's my view. What do you guys think? How, how did these guys get involved in, in the legal tech space? Well, I mean, what I would say is John is totally right. And I think one of the opportunities is thinking about ways that you can partner with law firms because we are looking for partners in the tech space right. for that reason. Um, and I think the law firms that identify some strategic partnerships um, those are the law firms that um, are really going to be able to play in this space without um, facing some of the risk that, you know, a law firm that acts as a software company, you know, could potentially face. Yeah, and um, just two things. To your point, I totally agree. I think one of the challenges law firms are going to have to confront is that long-term investment strategy that they are not set up to, to make right now. Um, the, right, and I don't think you're going to get a client to pay for that because they're going to say, if you guys are going to make a whole bunch of money and do an IPO based on what I pay you to do, cut me in. Right. So I'm, you know, or, or, or we're headed in that direction. The other thing is, it's not whether you have a guitar, it's how well you play it. And so um, the differentiator is to take standard technologies that are out there and weave magic. I mean, every lawyer starts his or her practice the day after they pass the bar. Uh, on the first day, they're all more or less equal. Yes, some do better in law school than others. 20 years later, some are nationally renowned to become Supreme Court justices or, or write textbooks or, you know, are standouts in their field, and others are not so standout. And so I think it's the use of technology and therefore, on we vendors, the creativity is demonstrate longevity, demonstrate ease of use, demonstrate survivability, demonstrate integratability. So when somebody comes to me and says, I built a really cool piece of software, it's all built with freeware and shareware and hopeware, run from it. <laughs> it ain't going to be here in five years from now. But if it's built on a standard platform, one of the big standard ones, then it's a good investment. Just to add about how people can get involved, <laughs> yeah, no, totally. um, lawyers who are interested in technology. I mean, I think there's so many learning opportunities out there. You know, the International Legal Technology Association, ILTACON, is a conference. It's quite an investment, but um, it is just a crash course in all of the emerging technologies that are out there in law um, and really, really smart people yeah. um, talking about all sorts of things and very forward-thinking lawyers talking about how they're using technology to, to change the practice. Definitely. So let's get to the... Uh I think there's a kind of concern within the legal industry that lawyers are seeing technology improvements um, that are kind of taking the attorney out of the picture. Um, and it's really scary for lawyers because that's putting them out of business. Um, what's your take on AI? Now, I, I kind of actually have an inside scoop on this. I've talked with the guys over at Watson um, who Ross Intelligence runs off of. Um, so I, I know where kind of it is, but I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on, you know, are the robots going to take over? Is it going to be a Terminator you know, status where there's no more lawyers and it's all robots? Or 
No, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> do you think there's any time frame on that, or? Well, I think you have to look at, let's, let's use the, the medical profession as an example. They've demonstrated that robots can do a full knee replace with more precision, because it's a machine guiding something to within microns, which is less than the human brain can control human movement. So I'll give you that because it's a physical action. But lawyers think, and, and AI, and I am a technologist, my whole life is dedicated to it, uh, AI is not gonna replace legal thinking, um, it just isn't. Um, you know, it can make a difference, it can find things faster, it can make suggestions, it can bring up precedents. Um, there's a saying that we have in the technology business, and I mentioned it to one of my tech colleagues out here, and he agreed, um, lawyers who are afraid of being replaced by computers ought to be. Right. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, I like that. True. Probably going to steal that from you. I think in a positive light, I mean, the, cons the consistent thing we're seeing is that in-house in-house counsel and outside counsel, the, you know, they're being required to sh to provide answers more immediately, right? Immediacy is a huge driver, um, and then efficiency. And if we can, I mean, all this is is looking for ways to leverage technology so that lawyers can provide more immediate, educated answers rather than legal analysis, um, and that we can do legal work more efficiently, um, it's far less scary to think about it when you just think about how do we use technology to do those two things better. Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I see it the same way as augmenting what lawyers do, and I totally agree with John that lawyers that are scared of being replaced by robots should be. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think that where AI could come into play is, you know, as you, as a lawyer is looking at a legal situation and you're looking at a situation where you're looking to change the law or refine the law, which happens all the time, I think what could possibly happen is that AI can can expand your brain in terms of how you can approach the legal issue before the court. The AI potentially could find analogous situations that could be applicable to your case. It's not there yet, um, but I think that's one possibility of how it could augment lawyer thinking. You know, it could provide the predictive, you know, you know, component to as you're, you know, gearing up for trial and developing your trial strategy. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, the as lawyers, we apply facts to the law and we apply the human elements to the law. There's a 360 degree, you know, living, um, you know, thing associated with practicing law. And, you know, you have policy issues, you have, you know, jurisdictional issues. And um, I would, I, I don't see AI going beyond an augmenting function. Definitely. And so, yeah, very well said. I, I completely agree. You know, there's that element of humanity. And we talked about it earlier. You know, you take a young parent that looks at a child and the child is about to cry, and you just know it from a, a bunch of symbols and yeah. movements and facial and, you know, everything. That's a lot of AI to pack into somebody's brain where mother's instinct works uh, just as well. And I think the, the jewel that lawyers have to offer their clients is it's a different human brain. Definitely. And uh, just finally, last question here. Um, a lot of people are saying that lawyers are really slow to adopt to technology. And I think, um, you know, in some cases that's definitely the truth. But uh, in, you know, your guys' cases, it's been really cool to, to read about how you guys are embracing technology and using it to, uh, to kind of optimize your entire workflows. Um, what do you think the big barriers are for attorneys, both sole practitioners to, you know, the AMLAW 50s, and what are the costs of, of not adopting the technology and not using, you know, the technology to their advantage? Darwin. Darwin. That's it. Death. That's it. You don't adopt, you don't eat, you don't eat, you die. That's it. I, I, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I think the billable hour is a huge um, impediment to adoption of technology and efficiency in, in legal practice, um, especially in the corporate world. I mean, I think, um, I think we need to find alternative ways to price our services and our expertise um, that will augment even more how quickly we're going to technology and how we're using it. What do you think are the most promising alternative fee um, arrangements that are available right now? 
think success fees are huge. I mean, I think um, value-based billing, I mean, I think tailoring it to what does this mean for the bottom line of the company? Um, is this a proactive strategic legal project or a reactive, you know? So, I, I mean, in, a, in general sense, I think that those are things that, that law firms are looking more and more to and, and partnering with clients to figure this out together. At least the good law firms. Well, it's an interesting story. In Texas, Richard Racehorse Haynes, a famous criminal uh, defense lawyer who primarily specialized in capital cases, his fee arrangement was very simple. Give me everything you have, because if you lose, you won't need it anyway. And if you win, I'll decide how valuable my services were, and I'll give you back what I don't want to keep. You know, I, think that, I think you're right, spot on. The value, value billing, um, it's, it can't be based on hours. Um, you know, mine, mine echoes what Kate was saying, but I think in terms of barriers to lawyers adopting technology, that's the thing you need to think about. You know, it's, it's sort of beyond the billing billable hour. You need to make that technology really easy for them yeah. to, to understand yeah. and work with. And right now, it I think it feels like to lawyers there's a lot of fragmented technology out there. Yeah. All these different technologies out there. And, and what the lawyers need is something consolidated that they can turn on and that is, you know, has a good user interface and they can see right away, okay, this will actually help me practice. Mm -hmm. and and I am not gonna it's not gonna require six months to figure this out I feel like there is a disconnect between sometimes you know the, it's almost like you need to get into the lawyers brains and how they practice um, my team I oversee a team of software developers and we're starting a shadowing program where my developers are gonna start shadowing lawyers because they just need to see how lawyers practice and how they need to interface and I th and so I think one of the barriers is truly the disconnect between the technologists and the lawyers and it's also not one size fits all. I mean, within firms like ours, there are, you know, the different practice areas are so different. And you know, like Katie's saying, I mean, what one lawyer, what what a lit what a litigator needs, and what a deal lawyer needs are very different things. And so, I feel like as firms, we're probably going to get there. But right now, we've invested a lot in technologists and technology departments and technology. But we really, I think, are going to see investments in change managers <laughs> who are there to help make this adoption easier on the lawyers. Absolutely. Uh, any final thoughts that you guys have that you'd like to share with uh, everybody here? You know, I mean, the only thing I, you know, it was kind of to one of the earlier questions about who, who are the biggest agents of change. And, you know, I would say the GCs cannot be understated, the role of the general counsels in um, pushing change. The role of the GC really has become a business advisor, and they are our best friends in terms of forcing the law firms to change even when they don't want to change. And, um, you know, those, those in-house counsel groups, the, you know, clock, um, the ACC, you know, those groups are really um, fostering wonderful and enormous change within the industry. Something else Katie and I spoke about earlier was just the willingness to share, um, to share knowledge, to share information. I mean, it, we're in nascent stages in this industry and in adopting technology and the willingness to, to talk about what we've tried, what's succeeded, what's failed, and what we've learned from it together as, as in-house legal departments, as law firms, as technologists, um, really just having these conversations. And thanks to Evolve Law, we have a platform to do that. Well, I completely agree with what you ladies have said, and it's really interesting. In our world, uh, we use phrases like market drivers and revenue producers, and now there's a couple of new ones. Uh, one is the law of compliance, and the other is the cost of liability. You look at the Wyndham Hotel case last year, you know, they didn't protect their uh, customers' data as well as they said they did. Cost them a couple hundred million bucks. So the GC has to answer to a different set of standards. They've got Sarbanes-Oxley and FFIEC and you know, all of the various um, uh, uh, corporate governance uh, standards that they have to live up to, and they're going to pass them right along to the law firms. Definitely. Well, thank you guys so much for spending the time. Um, I, I had a great conversation with you guys. Really learned a lot, genuinely. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, um, I guess, yeah, we might as well open up the, uh, open up for questions from anybody in the audience. Yeah, Eureka. 
Hi, um, my name is Eureka, and I used to be um, director of intellectual property for a NASDAQ-traded company. And the biggest problem that I used to have at the time was just the differences. I mean, for a variety of reasons, we, we dealt with a number of different law firms. And they were all at different levels of technology. So then I had some that had problems giving me monthly docket updates, whereas others were completely electronic. Um, can you comment a little bit on how, you know, Katie, you mentioned how you are trying to work together as law firms to, um, to sort of like bring everybody up to a level. Can you comment a little bit on how that, how you're, affect, how you're trying to affect those changes as well as you know, what you're hearing from your clients? I, I, for for me, and I and I would suspect that Kate will say the same thing. I think it is incumbent on law firms to create um, with clients um, some standard platforms mm -hmm. that everyone works off of. I think that we frankly have done our clients a disservice by all you know all of us working on different platforms, you know, working on, you know, different billing ty mm -hmm. types of, um, you know, arrangements. And, and I think that, just as Kate said, there is an opportunity for law firms to, to work with CLOCK, the Corporate Legal Operations Consortium, to really think through what those standards should be for the industry. And we're either gonna be thought leaders or we're gonna be followers. It's gonna be one of those because, as I said, clock is really pushing this stuff and forcing everybody to change. And I, I tr am a true believer that needs to, to change. I can give a really specific example, and I don't have the answer, but I'll, I'll talk to you about a challenge that I'm seeing and that our firm is seeing and wants to be a thought leader in, um, and we're trying to work with in-house counsel on, which is, um, to your point about building transparency and self-service models, right? So corporate legal departments work with many, many, many law firms. One of the things we've done for, for our clients is built out a dashboard that allows them complete transparency into our accounting and timekeeping systems so that they're able to see in near real time how the legal bills are stacking up, what time's being spent by which timekeepers, how much, how much is their billable rate, um, how many hours went into this analysis. And I think it's a valuable tool, but the challenge is, and we see it, is we're saying to our clients, well, what about when your other nine law firms start to offer you a dashboard? Are you gonna log in to 10 different dashboards? Um, and so we see a real need for law firms to come together, um, for probably clients to drive that, but for law firms to come together and build standard mm -hmm. platforms like Katie was mentioning. And, and, the, and the law departments need to be transparent too, because I mean, they, oftentimes the law departments aren't willing to be transparent on their own e-billing side, which is interesting because you don't have full transparency when, if you don't have right you know, the dual window, but. And the yeah. whole point of that technology is to make clients' lives easier. I mean, we're not charging them for that. Um, so we want it to be as useful as possible to them. So, so yeah, we're asking those tough questions and I think working together to try to figure out what the answer is. My plate's full and I'm not gonna do any more inventing in the rest of my life, but I just had a great idea. Um, look what happened to the airlines. They all had their different systems and then along comes Expedia and they solved the problem. So you imagine, Here's a new business idea. Somebody says, I'm the Expedia of law firms, and I'm going to put together a consolidated portal that'll take all of these different things and rationalize it so you go to one place and it shows you all the things. I think there's an opportunity for that. Technologists could respond to meet your need. That's a great point that you make. Definitely. Totally agree. Do we have any other questions? Um, you talked briefly about artificial intelligence, and um, I worked as a legal assistant for a period of time, and my lawyers were very resistant to technological change. Um, I don't think anyone thinks that robots are going to replace lawyers, but what do you think uh, the future of uh, bots or um, virtual assistants will be as far as their collaboration with lawyers in the future? Well, I think... I think artificial intelligence is in such an early stage right now that it's it's dumb artificial intelligence, um, if that makes any sense. There's not very much um, emotion that goes into it. There's not much empathy. Um, kind of like you guys have been saying, there's not really the, the human aspect to artificial intelligence yet. And we're still probably 20, 30 years out until we hit that point. 
Um, and up until then, I think it's going to be a lot of, um, like you guys said, kind of automating processes that you would pass off to paralegals um, historically. And um, it, it's going to more of supplement attorneys' workflows as opposed to taking them over. I also think, though, to your question, I, I, I think clients are less and less willing to pay for massive overhead. And so to the extent that technology can reduce overhead, I think that the law firms that adopt it will, um, you know, do better <laughs> than the law firms that don't. <laughs> I agree. And the two-word the two support for Katie's thing is called legal zoom. Yeah. Raise the price too high, we got a better idea. Yeah, and as far as you know, assistance goes, I mean, I think we've seen a pretty rapid um, adoption of document automation, things that paralegals and, and legal secretaries used to do. Um, so I think that's a sign that there's a lot of openness and that, that tools that truly take out the inefficiencies or make something f um, far more cost effective for clients will get adopted quickly. It's those really big, huge, kind of scary in the future things that, I, I mean, I do think, to Joe's point, it'll be a slower rate of adoption. I think I saw one more question, yeah. Or two more? Okay. Perfect. So in the past, the way law firms have purchased technology has been very, you know, one-off, kind of the, the model of the past. And now, you know, with the SaaS features coming out, with, with law firms developing their own technology, I'm curious kind of how you guys see the future of how law firms purchase technology playing out. Do you think the SaaS is going to have an impact? I think hopefully we're going to have better strate holistic strategic plans around what technologies we adopt, what technology companies we partner with or buy. Um, I, I mean, I think there's just going to be a lot more forward, you know, looking into the future and, and thinking far more strategically about what we invest in. I'll give you a slightly different answer to that. By analogy, um, the, the, the main driver for the features and smartphones are Japanese teenage girls. It's well known. They're the innovators, and the market adapts to them, and everybody else follows. So let's follow that same model. What, what are the main drivers in that? Companies like ours get valued a lot higher if they have a recurring revenue stream than if they have a fixed revenue stream. So we're all going for subscription revenues and, for instance, charging, because it's better for the business models, for the people who value our businesses, and we hope you like it. I'm sure you've probably heard this, but you know there are too many lawyers out there. And do you see in the near term, in the next five years, tech helping with that? Like I see, you know, um, the booth—I forgot the name of it—law um, booth actually helping you know clients reach you know smaller boutique law firms, and maybe helping with that. But do you see in the near term tech helping with that problem? And then in long term, do you see tech hurting that, or am I completely off base? Joe, maybe you can take that question. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, that's a really great question. Um, you know, there's no, I think everybody kind of has seen the, um, the numbers as far as law school applications. They, they've kind of crashed because it, it used to be a guaranteed job when you got out of school, um, but it, it really isn't that anymore. And I think there's going to be different technology solutions for the different types of lawyers. So the, the ones that come out of the, the elite schools, you know, the, the ones that are going to get hired by Amlaw 50, they don't really need technology to supplement their practice yet because they're going to be within one of the larger firms. Now, the other, the other lawyers, I shouldn't say like other lawyers, but um, kind, of, kind of the lawyers that are going to law firms that don't, or uh, law schools that don't guarantee placement in a job, I think they're going to be the ones that are, that are using technology the most um, because they're going to be able to reach out and find the clients that historically they haven't been able to find because they haven't had like the referral cycle that kind of the, the more pedigreed attorneys have. Um, I don't know, what do you guys think? About how technology will help too many lawyers find <laughs> legal needs. I mean, I think if you ask our friend Dan Lear, he would say there's a huge underserved market of people who need legal help and legal advice that aren't being served because they don't know how to find the right person at the right price. And you know, companies like Avo and LegalZoom, and I mean, they're helping connect legal needs and, and practitioners, which I think will help that problem. The other thing I'd say is with too many lawyers without jobs, the good news is there are a lot of alternative career paths now that 
intersect between law and technology or law and design. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more of that. That brings up the other point that um, I kind of lost while I was talking there. So 80% 80 of Americans don't have adequate access to legal services. And price is the number one factor contributing to that. And what technology is doing is driving down the, the overall cost for clients. So when a lot of people, a lot of attorneys see technology um, driving down the price, they see a shrinking market size, when in reality it's growing the market because it's giving more access to um, clients who historically wouldn't have access to it at all. I think we have one more question from Chad. Hi. <laughs> um, just to touch on a point by John or, um, earlier, we seem to now be in a revolutionary age for communication. Um, where we now have actually messaging apps that are outpacing social media as a means of communication, both growth and usage. And my question is, how are law firms adjusting to that? Because from the perspective of the GC, their primary methods of communicating with an attorney are a phone call or an email, uh, let alone through social media or any other means. What are some ideas that law firms are implementing or some that might be on the horizon? So, um, you know, I think that's a big challenge for, for law firms. Um, and there's, a, there's an internal challenge, you know, to communicate and collaborate with each other better. And then the external challenge of communicating and collaborating better with our clients. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the tools that we're about to start piloting is called ThreadKM, which is, you know, a collaboration tool internally for lawyers. And essentially, um, it, it, the, the tool communicates in the way that we're all becoming accustomed, which is by thread and then, you know, by continuous sort of text style that, you know, you can link in your documents and, and um, really have sort of a collaborative um, system. Um, you know, I think there are other opportunities out there as well. Um, and, you know, the, the, the trick for communicating and collaborating externally with clients, I think that needs to be solved by you guys. <laughs> I, we, we need technologists to solve that problem because we need, you know, a good platform um, where, it, you know, uh, the communication flows in a manner that we can all handle. I, you know, the emails are out of control. Just to really quick, there's a nice template that's going to pave the way to answering that question. It's in the medical profession. It's already happened with Obamacare. Doctors are required to provide patient portals. So now you get on, you say, Doc, should I take one aspirin or two? And they say two. So they've imparted professional judgment for four-tenths of one second. It's valuable, but it doesn't constitute an office visit. They're going to have to solve that problem and set a template for law. I think the meds are going to get there first. I mean, oh, sorry, go ahead. I'd just say where we're at is we've tested and experimented at this point. I mean, we've adopted an enterprise-wide messaging solution that failed, and we got rid of it. Um, we've So we knew that that was kind of out-of-the-box solution, didn't work for us. Um, so now we're, we're kind of building our own. You know, we've been really scrappy at using SharePoint. We've got SharePoint experts who can build out messaging boards for us. Um, we've used them with clients. We've used them internally. But I don't think we have the answer yet, but we are... I'm, I'm pleased to say that our firm is really testing and experimenting how, how we can adopt a solution like that. Another thing that both Kate, as Kate mentioned and my firm also does, is that we've, we've adopted other technologies that facilitate other types of communication, like the, the dashboards, where clients can see real time where matters stand, what the budget is. I mean, you can even look granularly for us at, you know, um, which attorneys are having a longer than average um, you know, resolution cycle for certain mat matters so that you can you know, flag those issues and see if there's a problem. So there, there are communication tools that are out there that some firms are using that you know, give visibility in that way, but I think that there needs to be more done. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate you guys stopping by. Stopping by. Yeah. <laughs> Stopping by. Just swing by. Well, I wanted to thank Joe, and I didn't introduce Joe properly at the beginning because uh, I got all excited about the robots. Um, but <laughs> Joe is um, part of Law Booth, and we're going to hear from um, Willie from Law Booth in a moment with our Darwin talk. But Law Booth, it's very interesting to me because neither of these two are lawyers, and they came up with their solution. And so as we go through the different 
um, involve law members. We now have 84 members, and Davis Wright Tremaine is a founding law firm member, and we're happy if Brian Cave wants to join them. Um, <clears throat> always be selling. Uh, but the whole idea is each of these companies, the legal tech companies, they have different stories. Sometimes it's lawyers like Ebrevia, lawyers that were super frustrated with losing their entire weekends with document review, so they created something. Or you get people who come in from the outside and say, okay, this process is broken. We need to fix it. So I think it's, it's a really exciting time. Um, I can tell you that I hope that we don't go the same way as some of the medical because it's my new pet peeve, you know, between like I got kids, I got, you know, my own dentist. I live in Arizona half time, so I got to go to a dermatologist every year. I have to log into like 12 different portals to figure out what the results are from this test or that test. So let's hope we go down this standardization of, in some form. I think it's a huge opportunity if you want to go off into the medical field to figure that out. I know ZocDoc is trying to do it, but somebody needs to do it better. So I will get off my soapbox and thank all of you for coming and talking. And I wanted to thank not only our hosts, um, Adam and Trent and all the great guys here, but Iron Mountain's Intellectual Property Management sponsored this and then they could not attend. So all of the beer and all of the cheese and everything is thanks to Iron Mountain's Intellectual Property Management. So a big round of applause for them. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Special Reports. This is Lawrence Coletti signing off. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.